You're listening to The COVID Chronicles, a podcast from the Emory University Center for the Study of Human Health. Each week, a student from the Health and Science podcasting course interviews public health experts about the COVID-19 pandemic and the important intersections with nutrition, mental health, maternal health, and more. I'm Carolyn Christ, a health and medical journalist in Georgia who co-teaches the podcasting course. I hope you'll enjoy this series as much as I did. Now let's get started with this week's episode. Hi, and welcome to the Neurotech Talk. I'm your host, Juan Martin Abramellon. On this episode, I sit down and talk about how COVID-19 has impacted the neurotech field, but I also talk about the marvelous work the people I interviewed are doing. I sit down with people from all walks of life and different parts of the world to talk about where they see the field heading. Hope you enjoy the insights and perspectives. On this first interview, I talk with Dr. Cesar Echevarria, a recent neuroscience PhD graduate from Harvard University, and now a neurodata scientist at Catalyst Neuro to talk about how COVID-19 has impacted the end of his work as a graduate student and his job search. Hope you enjoy. Hi, everybody. My name is Juan Martin Abramellon, and here I have Dr. Cesar Echavarria. Dr. Echavarria, would you like to give a little introduction? Sure. So I have a background in neuroscience. I just finished my PhD in neuroscience. And basically, my background is in basic neuroscience research using large-scale neural recordings to try to understand the computations that allow animals to extract information from their visual environment and guide behavior. That's awesome. And what are you currently involved with uh, in the field of neuroscience as a whole? Right, right. So right now, since finishing my PhD, I've recently started as a neural data scientist with a small company called Catalyst Neuro. And we're building software tools to allow people to share their, their data more easily so that you know scientists can share their data across labs in a standard format and the co- more more collaborations can happen and neuroscience research can leap forward. That's awesome. Um, yeah. And going on that note, um, mm-hmm. when it comes to talking about um, your job search and when it comes to now having graduated from your doctoral program, how has that process throughout the past year and a half and how has COVID impacted your work as a scientist in the field? How did that affect your, the end of your PhD? How did that affect your job search? Uh, do you mind telling me a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll pick it up and first talk about the, the PhD part. Um, so thankfully, when, when the pandemic started and the lockdown started in March 2020, uh, I was already, I was done with, with data collection because that's the main um, point, uh, the pain point where people suffered the COVID just if, if you had experiments going on, if you had data collection going on, that stopped, uh, you know, it, it, both in academia and industry, right? There's the, uh, I also know that several companies that were, you know, maybe on the way to clinical trials or just just in the middle of them and some of that had to stop so thankfully that didn't affect me so i had i had all the data i needed and i just needed to sort of analyze it and write uh, i guess the, the part that it that did impact me uh, towards the end of my research is that there were no conferences to go to and just you know sort of present my thesis research which is a, a big exciting component of when you're finishing your phd and you have a story and you know things are starting to make sense going out there and sharing the science there were there were no avenues that I mean, I did attend like a, a virtual conference in Europe. Uh, it was a virtual conference I had planned to go before the pandemic started, but it just, it's not the same. I mean, didn't speak to anyone about my poster because no one came to the virtual session. I think people were just like not, I mean, understandably, people were just not, uh, didn't have time to engage with that. So 
that that is sort of like how COVID affected the flavor of the end of my PhD. And of course, I also uh, like does the thesis defense, which is usually, I mean, usually it's an in-person and, you know, you see people from across the department, maybe people they haven't seen in years since you joined your lab and you share your research with them and that that uh, didn't happen I, I had to I had to do it uh, virtually uh, which you know it has it has its pros in that more more people were able to join um, you know from that that weren't in the nearby area so you know it's it wasn't all bad you know I, I think overall like you know the fact that I had to do a, a virtual seminar it's actually a plus so that's how it affected my research and I guess you know, the job search, so the post-PhD job search uh, was affected, I guess, in, in a couple different ways. One is that, you know, for, for a period of time, or I guess mainly was that uncertainty was introduced into the equation. I feel like that's really what affected the job search overall, both personally and on from my side and the others from the company side, right? Because companies, they just didn't know, okay, how, is, how long are these lockdowns going to last? you know, they, they need to, they need to plan like, okay, like, do we have, you know, how, what's our next year going to look like? Do we need more personnel? And because of that uncertainty, just uh, a lot of companies just decided to, you know, hold off on hiring and uncertainty was introduced into every person's lives, you know, so maybe there would be someone that would leave a position that then I could apply to, right? But because like the uncertainty that person in, in that position had about their life, you know, maybe they weren't so eager to leave anymore. Everyone just sort of buckled down. That, and, and it affected me because I also had questions about like relocating, uh, being in the Boston area, you know, there were like opportunities to to go somewhere else in the country that I didn't really have connections. And it was like a big question mark of like, yeah, okay, like, you know, there's a few opportunities sound cool, but they're like, you know, in places like Seattle, San Francisco, I don't really have a community there. Can I, you know, commit to taking a job here like in two months? I don't know what the situation will be like. I don't really want to commit to taking a job if I'm just going to like go and, and be completely isolated in the other part of the country. So that's, that, that is sort of is the, the main points in which COVID had an influence in my job search. Uh, and saying things have picked up uh, from the summer onwards and just people, people are saying that, okay, this, this might be something that we just are going to have to deal with uh, to some degree and why we're not there. And they have plans into how to deal with the evolving COVID situation. So, you know, hiring has picked up Companies are like pursuing their, their projects that they have put off and it's getting back to some uh, realm of normalcy. Well, to start off, I just want to say I'm very glad for uh, you having now starting your new job and overcoming that really tough time of uncertainty. I think it was very hard for you in the sense that you didn't know if you would have to move or if you or what opening would be available since everything was just so unpredictable. And during that time frame, I wanted to say, how did you stay occupied? in an industry, do any seminars? Did you um, make any connections in the neurotech field or in the computational neuroscience field as a whole? And can you tell me a little bit more about that? Like, what did you get involved with in that point in time? Yeah, so one of the big things that I did during during that time was you start getting involved with NeurotechX, which is this uh, organization for students and professionals that are interested in neurotechnology. And they have a very active Slack channel that's very active. And during the course of the pandemic, they organized a lot of virtual events like talks, hackathons. So that was like a good way to, to connect with people. And, and what was nice about it, I guess, is that, you know, I was, I was connecting with people from really all over the world. You know, I guess before the pandemic, there were these local chapters, 
you know, like there's uh, like in London, in Boston, in San Francisco, and they would have events, you know, that that are in person, and so they would involve people from the local area. And what was nice about it is during the pandemic, since everyone went virtual, you know, you now had access to probably like five times the events. You could attend the events that were being planned in the London chapter or the the West Coast chapter. So that was great. It was it was a great way to sort of start connecting with people as I just became more and more interested in neurotechnology, you know, and also the, the fact that, you know, I guess people, people uh, were sort of stuck at home. I think that also made it easier to find time with people that, you know, to, to talk about interesting career paths or interesting work that, that people had. I think that kept me very busy, you know, just networking and also, also working on, on some projects with the community. Yeah, also add to that, me being now part of that community of NeuroTechX, I think one of the big pros of joining community like that is that there's so many resources across all different channels and across all different groups that are working on really cool stuff around the world. And I think being a part of that community that is now global, it, I think it's really empowering. And given the increase in connections in the field and given the increase in emphasis of neurotech, I wanted to ask you a very general question in the sense that where do you see this field going in the next couple of years, in the next, let's say, five years or so? What developments do you think are the biggest developments that could be coming out in the next couple of years? Yeah, I think we're going to see big developments in both the consumer side of neurotechnology. So I think in, in the consumer side and the clinical side. So on the consumer side, I think we're going to start seeing integration of neurotechnology devices into things like virtual reality. Uh, the form factor of, you know, uh, virtual reality goggles is like, just very amenable to just put some electrodes in there and give you some way to interact with the uh, virtual reality environment by way of, you know, the, the EEG signal. There's also, you know, a lot of companies that have developed very good hardware for to record EEG signals from headphone type devices, you know, and whether it's trying to augment different types of the audio or trying to just keep track of your level of engagement with whatever environment you're in. It's very clear that this is like a good match between the form factor of the product and the hardware that's available to create some pretty cool neurotechnologies. And on the other side, there's the, the clinical factor, right? So this is not really what's going to reach the life of everyone, but the technology that has been developed in the realm of machine learning really makes it promising that in, you know in, in the next five to ten years we're probably going to have very good assistive technologies for people that have suffered some injury that prevents them from interacting with the physical world naturally such as you know paraplegia or something like that really we have the technology to give these people the ability to either transform the brain signals to control prosthetic devices or control digital media and that way you know give them a higher quality of life and the hardware has been there for a while but uh, like more and more we understand the coding of how the brain is encoding different types of movements of intentions and now we can make use of that uh, coupled with the uh, advances in machine learning to really create very powerful technologies for, for these populations. That's awesome. It's, and from what I'm gathering and from what I'm learning as well is that this industry is just starting, I think. I think that there's a lot of promise in the field moving forward with all of these developments. One of the questions I have is that I think many people have is obviously this technology is being done for very good purposes and to try to better understand 
how to treat different neurological disorders. And what I would like to know, though, is a lot of times the argument might might be that people say, oh, is where are the ethics surrounding this industry? Especially as we start seeing not only small startups continue to grow, but also as we see big tech getting into that space as well. What are your thoughts on neuroethics? And where do you see neuroethics playing a role in the future in the field? Yeah, I mean, neuroethics are, are central to it. I mean, they're obviously the consequences of, of not thinking through any technology are disastrous, you know, just like they can have bad consequences in society. But I think also the companies have an interest in thinking about the ethics and issues such as privacy early on, because you really want to enable trust with you know the, the the users of your technology you really want you know this this technologies are they're, they're going to be transformational as long as people take them up and use them and you know they don't just like maybe buy them and stuff them in the drawer a week later so you really want people to to trust and use these devices and you know because that service is central to the mission of these companies so thankfully i mean companies are are taking it seriously and you know there's always you know from this very early stage there's a lot of thinking about okay how do we preserve privacy what sort of um, applications are ethical and what isn't and you know and and trying to engage you know people like knowledgeable people uh, from academia like uh, bioethicists to try and talk about these questions and, and come up with solutions that matter I mean, I, I also want to say that, you know, th- there's a big class of technologies that could be considered new technology. So this is specifically technologies that, you know, are not recording brain signals, but they're recording something like eye movements. And these technologies will probably be deployed in various contexts in the next one to two years. They're pretty advanced, but the issues that arise with something like you know, brain data arise with this kind of data because from eye movements, you can tell a lot of things about a person. You can tell something about their, their gender, what sort of things they, they might be interested in based on like what areas of the scene they put their eyes on or things like, you know, are they developing some sort of some brain disorder? by how the, what their movements look like. So, you know, like health data. So how do we make the most out of the technology that we have without sacrificing people's information, people's privacy? So there's, you know, technologies that, that are being developed that maybe are borrowing from some of the fields of technology, you know, so, such as something that allows classifier to be trained without maybe having explicit, with, with, without having explicit access to a user's data. So maybe have an encrypted an encrypted version or a form of encryption that still mathematically works out so that uh, you know a model on the cloud can be trained but no one really has access to that user's data so that is secure yeah so it's, it's something that people are taking seriously and you know it, it adds challenges but they're worthwhile challenges and it will create better technology along the way i totally agree with you i personally think that it's a very good step that a lot of these companies, a lot of these initiatives, they're trying to focus on neuroethics in whatever work that you're doing and taking that as a priority in the development of new technology, I think is of utmost importance moving forward. I want to wrap up on this final question, but I think it's a very important question. You being a Latino scientist, me also being a Latino trying to get into that space as well in neurotech, what role do you think diversity plays in the field? Have you thought about how diversity is played in the field? What are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's really important. We would want to reach the lives of as many people as possible, right? And that just requires you to have a diverse body of people developing their technologies so that they understand, you know, the, the various use cases that could be useful. Maybe like, like in our communities, like the use cases will be different than in other communities. And I think that's very powerful. And also, I mean, just having people that, you know, can also reach the, the like, millions of people that live in Latin America. I think it's it's also important to to have representation, you know, so that people that are, you know, uh, being educated in Latin America, they can see that this is an, an exciting industry that they can get into. And there's like a path to get involved in this a great, really exciting endeavor. So I think I always want to see people like myself that I identify with in neurotechnology and slowly starting to change. Uh, I feel like maybe back when I was an undergrad, I, I looked at grad students and uh, most of them, you know, didn't, didn't look like me, but more and more there's just, just better diversity in the field. And I'm really, really excited to see like the next generation of scientists and what they will accomplish and, you know, where they will come from. That's, I think you honed it in very well there. I personally, I'm on the same side as you in that sense. Obviously for me, it's, I've even seen that change throughout my first four years in academia here at Emory as an undergrad to a point where towards the beginning of my career as a researcher, even in my own lab environment, we have started to see a growth in uh, diversity of employees in our own lab. And I think that's very remarkable. And I think moving forward, especially when you develop neurotechnology, you also have to make sure that neurotechnology is adaptable for everybody and inclusive. And I think at least my personal goal is to try to decrease barriers of access to neurotechnology in the future. And I think that the field is going in a positive direction by trying to recruit more people from diverse backgrounds. And I think that moving forward, that has to be a number one priority if you want to really gain, if you really want to make this industry mainstream and global. So with that, I would like to say thank you. Thank you for your insights. Thank you for your for the knowledge and your expertise and your opinions that you brought to this podcast today. My pleasure. I just wanted to say uh, thanks for everything. Um, also, thank you as well for your continued mentorship to me from one Latino neuroscientist to another Latino trying to grow and learn in the field. I appreciate that. So be inviting to a lot of people like you and me. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's exciting times. And I, I really look forward to, you know, seeing you develop in your career. Thank you so much. After talking with Dr. Echevarria about how COVID has impacted his end of academic career, I wanted to see how COVID has impacted current students studying and diving into the field. On this segment, I talk with Bruno Bustos and Manuel Illanes, the two co-founders of the first Latin American chapter of NeuroTechX, currently based in La Paz, Bolivia. Bruno and Manuel are currently studying and working at Bolivian Catholic University and are dedicated to connecting the NeuroTech community across Bolivia and Latin America. My name is uh, Juan Martin Abramelin, and I just wanted to ask you, uh, Manuel and Bruno, can you give yourselves a little introduction on who you are? What do you do? Sure. Thank you, Juan. Uh, well, my name is Manuel Llanes. I'm from La Paz, Bolivia. I co-founded the first Neurotech X uh, student club chapter here in uh, Bolivian Catholic University in La Paz. And also, I'm also a co-founder of the uh, Neurotech X Latam branch. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Bruno. I am from La Paz, Bolivia as well. I am also part of Neurotech UCB, that is our student club on, on our university. And I'm also part of a Neurotech X Latam. Amazing. And 
What are you guys currently working besides just NeuroTechX? Are you students? Do you work in the field? What is your current involvement? I'm a, I'm a master's student of data science in the Catholic University. Uh, my major was psychology. I like technology and psychology and neuropsychology. So that's how I got into the field of neurotech. And I love it. I love it, but, but it's still a new thing. Uh, so I'm trying to find my path still. I'm also a psychologist. Well, this year I have been an intern in, uh, in the clinical psychological um, advisement in my university. So that's why I'm very interesting very interested in how technology can help this this field as well. So that was my first step into into neuro neuroscience and neurotechnology, especially in the in the new advancements of how we can merge like these brain computer interfaces or technology with with new uh, ways of treatment to help or aid people. Amazing. I wanted to ask you both, especially since this is still an ongoing issue across the world over the past year, especially since you guys were starting up uh, NeuroTechX LATAM. How has COVID impacted your work, not just with NeuroTechX, but also with your daily work as a student? How were you affected personally? Um, what changes did you have to make to your routine? How was that like for you guys? Personally, for me, uh, it wasn't that much of a shock because I, I was used to work uh, on the computer. <laughs> so most of my work was based uh, remotely. I can still program, I can still design something in my house. So just uh, a little bit before the pandemic, and there was like a huge uh, revolution here in my country. So everything go to, to remote, to the remote format. So we were kind of used to when the pandemic started, we had at least some, some experience working. It, it wasn't like a big transition for us because uh, at least for all the things that were, that were happening in the, at the university and the and the assignments and all the stuff, uh, we we at least had a base to to work for for a remote work and all that. And plus, I like it. <laughs> I really like working remotely. I really I, I don't feel bad about it. And yeah, for me, it's more comfortable actually. In my personal experience, for me, it was a huge challenge because <laughs> I also remember that that social problem that I had in our country. In, at the end of 2019 and yeah we had some some remote classes but at the start of, of 2020 I decided to to do a parallel degree in economics and business intelligence so that that is where I learned how to program that's where I decided how I could merge all this all this uh, knowledge and to, to help psych psychology or, or to unite psychology um, with neuroscience and technology technology in my country so it was a huge programming because it was a huge challenge because i had to start programming during the pandemic and most of, of my teachers weren't used to remote working but it was awesome of course because we had to learn a lot of things that i think are going to be very useful even when if we want to to make a more remote projects not only in our country so yeah everything was worth it one thing that i can say about all this process of change is that some of the things got easier because uh, more people uh, got uh, have to get in touch with the technology. So uh, more, more transactions are being done through internet more than the last uh, two years. So that kind of makes things easier for some of us. And 
yeah, it's kind of like uh, the te technology has to be adapt had to be adapted pretty quickly uh, for for most of the people. So that is some benefit. <laughs> I realize now because at the start uh, everything was uh, what are what are we going to do and all the stuff. Uh, for example, we started Neurotechx UCV during the pandemic, and all our work has ever been done remotely, and we never had like a problem. <laughs> With that, so if somebody is one day, I don't know, on the other side of the world, uh, I think we can we have uh, at least some base knowledge to to keep working as a team remotely. So that that is one of the mm, benefits, unforeseen benefits from this experience. And I would agree. Although the pandemic has got has had a lot of consequences, sad consequences, we have seen a lot of people get innovative and a lot of people get creative. As for example. The reason why Bruno and I even know each other is a ton of scientists gathering together to create Neuromatch Academy, which for context is online school meant to teach everyone from around the world skills in computational neuroscience and deep learning. And that's how you have people like me that I live in Atlanta, Georgia, communicating with Bruno, who lives in La Paz, Bolivia, learning together and trying to figure out new adaptations in the field of neuroscience and also NeuroSecX has also become a very global community, I think. Specifically, what has been some of the challenges for you guys with starting NeuroTechX and how has that panned out for you guys specifically? Tell me more about NeuroTechX. Uh, sure. Uh, challenges, uh, we had a lot and we're still facing a lot. Maybe the, the most important challenge is the team. It's hard to work with people sometimes uh, sometimes they don't really know what are we doing and, and this is hard to work as a group because I, I never I never was good at groups at university so um, it was like a challenge it was a very interesting learning experience some people like it some people don't like it some people leave some people stay so that that is um, kind of hard and that is tough and it teach you uh, very interesting lessons uh, right now I think that we have a very interesting team we we managed to form a very great team actually and we want to keep uh, the this initiative forward like neurotech uh, as a field is actually pretty new not not only in Bolivia but in every part <laughs> We're like a niche in, in every, everywhere you go. Doesn't matter if you are in Germany, the US or Canada. We are very few people in the field. Uh, and thanks to the internet, thanks to the connections, thanks to community hubs like NeuroTX, we get in touch with each other and we feel more more close. There. And that, that, that helps a lot because you can ask something and, and somebody from San Francisco can help you with that or somebody from other part of the work and can give you a tip about uh, how to do a better code or how to work on a better machine learning model, something like that. So at the end, we speak like one language, but we are in different parts of the world. And that is very interesting. Actually, more than closing our, our, our lives, I think that we, we expanded, at least in, in the networking side, uh, we got uh, more connections, we, are, we have more confidence talking with people from, you know, overseas and even in different languages like English. 
my English was terrible and it still is, but I, I think uh, I feel at, at least pretty, uh, a little bit more confident with it. A lot, lot of lessons learned. Yeah, it is, it, is the same for, it is the same for me. Like I have never learned as much as I did since I belonged to this community. Uh, we have learned from the basics. Like we have learned from, I don't know, how to write a formal email or how to build an interdisciplinary team, how to organize an event, <laughs> how to build projects in less than three days, or how to to process signals. <laughs> like from every point you, you see it, it's it was a nurturing experience. So yeah, I'm very happy and I'm, I'm very willing to, to share my experience with, with the rest of people that are interested in uh, around the world. It is an awesome community. And I think uh, neuroscience communities, it's a very interesting community. It's full of young people, motivated people, and I think it's awesome to belong to. Of course. Um, and I feel the exact same way with starting my club here at Emory. It's been just getting used to starting up an organization from the ground up, finding those connections, and especially since you guys were the first ones to do NeuroTechX in Latin America. We're the first club to actually do it in the southeast of the United States. So it's a very interesting process of trying to get this all started up. And we all share a similar passion for the field. And... It's a very small group of people and a very, and a lot of co-work cool is being done, but I wanted to ask you guys just in broad terms, where do you see the field going moving forward? What are, what have you found interesting from what you've seen? Um, and where do you see that ha uh, in the next, uh, like, let's say five years? I know the field is growing uh, a lot thanks to the exponential technologies that is, that confirms the field of machine learning, artificial intelligence, biosignals virtual reality, all, all that. Uh, but it's hard to, uh, you have to maybe divide the field yeah. between invasive and non-invasive approaches. So non-invasive approaches are going to be more related for entertainment, for maybe, um, I don't know, more, more accessible rehabilitation paradigms and training and maybe for schools. And that is the future I see for non-invasive technology. For invasive technology, for companies like Ringgate 2 or Neuralink and all these big players, they are going to be more focused on the clinical settings. So on the, on the healthcare and, and, and all this stuff. So I don't know, maybe in the next five years, we're probably going to see more, more consumer-grade um, devices on, on the market more um, less expensive more cheaper better better paradigms more people getting into machine learning more people maybe discussing it in in, in the day in their daily lives like hey I, ha I have this new interface for my video game yeah maybe maybe that's that's the way it's going to look forward for non-invasive technology and for invasive technology i hope i hope that the clinical trials are successful and if uh, i remember i watched some i don't know some like predictions for the future they said that for 2029 by the by the end of this decade around a million people will have our like implanted devices probably most of them for for rehabilitation purposes so uh, and the next 10 years is going to at least duplicate, right? Yeah. So that's going to be interesting. That's how I see it. I, I, see, I see a bright future. I hope that this revolution will be bigger than the internet or bigger than the consumer, you know, the personal computer or the smartphone. 
I hope, I hope. Yeah, like on my, on my side, like I always say that this is going to be the decade of the brain. <laughs> like probably entertainment is going to hugely change in the next 10 years. Clinical neuroscience and clinical psychology is evolving as well. Probably knowledge about our body or our brain or our, like our, the thing that we have called mind until today is going to be more accessible. So like I'm also, I'm also very interested in, in what is what will be the political and economical uh, aspects of, of these revolutions as well like i don't know we are beginning to talk about neuro rights we're beginning to talk about new privacy rules right so i don't know what is going to happen like no one does but i i, I know it's going to be huge it's going to be the decade of the controversies for a lot of stuff like privacy like personal data like uh, cognitive augmentation all these things that we saw on sci-fi films may become partially true. <laughs> and <laughs> hackers, maybe, oh, I don't yeah. know. So, there's no way to be prepared. That's, that's for certain. There's no way to, to know to what extent is going to change our lives regarding the augmentation, regarding the technology that's going to be involved. Maybe a new economy around one technology uh, nobody asks for technology nobody votes no nobody voted to to have internet internet just appeared one day and in in in, in less than five ten years it was everywhere and, and people was uh, <laughs> millionaire just working on the internet so that 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 is the base of technology maybe nobody knows what is going to get us in the future and it's it's funny that you guys mentioned this because that was actually my next question it was talking about neuroethics as do you guys see an importance in that especially as we continue to see these developments happen and how uh neurotechnology is starting to play a role into law justice the economy is there room for the table for neuroethics and should there be a room in the table for neuroethics i think yes but i would like to hear your opinions on that yeah it's huge like definitely the more we know about ourselves it's like the not the more careful we need to be with, with the decisions we're we going to, to have in the future because i don't know like it's not only about about our minds or what we do it's about how how huge the impact of our species is in the world so this is why it's important to to, <laughs> to talk about about um how to to improve this impact how to improve things that we can do or, or the energy that we consume, for example. Like, I think that all of this resides on, on how proper decisions, how health our brains are and how technology is going to merge with that. So it, it is a discussion of ours, I know, but, yeah. <laughs> but that's, that's what I can say for now. There's going to be pressure from many sides. Like for one side, you have the pressure of the new generations. New generations are going to adopt this technology just as fast as they, as they adopted the smartphones or video games or something like that. And older, older generations are going to be more easily, by definition, more obsolete. <laughs> Let's say it like that. So um, there's an ethical dilemma we have to resolve. And that, that is for certain. But also, this technology has great potential for many things, and it's not—it's not for surveillance. It's not for uh, manipulation or control, but for expand our our limitations. Like 
intelligence, what wouldn't you do? What could you do if you are more, more intelligent, more empathic, more, more aware of the situation, more aware of all the things that comes? Um, if you can process three to 10 times more data, what would you do? Maybe, maybe you can do great things. Maybe everybody starts uh, to do, to solve problems and start better, taking better decisions. So th that is the, the way the technology, this technology should, should take us rather than being a control device or something like that. So privacy is going to be a very, very important, very important topic. And maybe the central topic for many things like cryptography, encryption, this is going to be a terms very um, interiorized in our, in our daily lives. Yeah, I totally agree with you guys, especially as this field continues to develop it. Neuroethics uh, has to be at the very center of all these developments. Um, and I think, I think the people that are doing this work are doing it for the right intentions. I, I think it's it, our intentions in the field are very pure, but especially as we start to see bigger influences uh, come our way, it's something that we can never lose sight of as a field. I wanted to ask one last question. I think it's a very important question to ask, especially us, we're all Latinos in this field. And I wanted to ask you, what role do you guys think diversity plays in the field? Have you felt accepted? Um, how has your experience been, especially you guys starting the first Latin American Neurotech X chapter? How has that experience been for you guys as a whole with diversity? Uh, pretty great, actually. It was a very great ex experience. I never felt put to the side in something or... No, I, I actually think that your, your knowledge, your technical skills are more important than your origin. I meet a lot of people from different countries, even from other, other, other folks from Latin America. Even us, Latins, Latinos, we don't know each other very well. So, for example, I got in touch with this person from Brazil, and I and I realized that I have no idea about their their habits or their the the, the situation that make them Brazilians and or, or Argentinians or, or Mexicans. So we are very different, but at the same time, we we share a lot of stuff. So I, I think um, I made a lot of friends along the with the journey so yeah it's been a great experience for, for me for myself yeah i think that the thing that we need to to worry about is is how behind our countries are like and how easy it could be to start uniting the field in our countries because we share we share spanish <laughs> and and many other regions of the world do not share the, uh, a language and do great things and I, I think that this is where we need to to improve we need we need to i don't know to enhance our communication uh, paths because we not right now like I, I know that the field is very welcoming to us like like I never felt like put aside as well but but I think that we need to start proposing things on our side and considering our cultural differences as well like of course I think that neurodiversity is very important as it is but but talking about regions of the world, I think that, that our continent has a huge potential in becoming part of this field. So, so I'm excited to be part of it as well. And I agree with you guys. As Bruno and I, we, we went through uh, Neuromash together and we were in a group with people from all around Latin, uh, Latin America. 
So you had you had Colombians, Puerto Ricans, Bolivians, Mexicans all in all in one room together. Um, and I think the field is very welcoming, but also um, we do have a lot of room to grow. Um, and I think it is very important, especially us as Latinos and in this as part of this culture, we have an obligation to try to branch out to people from that speak our language as well and try to understand them as well. Because uh, my experience as a Puerto Rican in neurotechnology might be different from what you guys as Bolivians uh, work on and your experiences, especially me living in the United States. My experience might be different from someone in South America. So it's always important to be mindful of this moving forward as we go through the field. Yeah, that's that's my take. I just wanted to say thank you to both of you for taking the time to do this interview. And just thank you so much for sharing with us your thoughts on the field and the work you guys have been doing. And I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Juan. It was a really nice chat. And yeah, I, I hope we can push a little, uh, the forward, push forward the field a little bit more here in our countries. And yeah, may play a, a, at least a, a part in this technology, neurotechnology revolution. Yeah, thank, thank you very much for this opportunity, Martin. It was it was awesome and yeah, very nurturing for me as well. Like it, it always makes you think. What do you, <laughs> what do you don't talk about all the time, right? So, thank you. Thank you, everybody. After talking with Bruno and Manuel about how by building up Neurotech X Latam, they have been able to connect with people from across the global neurotech community. I started thinking about how we have been positively impacted through the work of organizations such as Neuromatch Academy. I met Bruno through Neuromatch Academy, which is an online school meant to provide high-quality and accessible computational neuroscience at deep learning education to students across the world. Starting out as a venture to unite the community through COVID, Dr. Gunnar Blum, a professor of computational neuroscience and the principal investigator of the Computational Sensory Motor Neuroscience Lab at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada, he co-founded the Academy and has helped students such as Bruno and I learn and grow thanks to the resources he helped develop. Hello, everybody, and I'm here with uh, Dr. Gunnar Blum. Dr. Blum, can you give a quick introduction on what you do and who you are? Yeah, thank you for having me. So I'm a computational neuroscientist at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, and that's in Canada, you know, the snowy north of this continent. My main research is about motor control and motor coordination. Sensory motor transformations are part of what uh, we study in the lab. And more recently, I've been, well, I've been involved for a long time now in education um, in computational neuroscience, uh, first with uh, the Computational Sensory Motor Neuroscience Summer School, also abbreviated COSMO, and then more, more recently with uh, Neuromatch Academy. Amazing. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your work as a scientist in the field, and I know you've been part of COSMO and uh, Neuromatch Academy. How has since the onset of COVID-19, how has your work been impacted in the lab and as a professor as well, and all these other initiatives that you do? That's a very broad question. Um, so, I mean, the, 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 the pandemic kind of hit right after we returned from a lab retreat, which was a very strange thing <laughs> to happen. Um, and we even had during that lab retreat, a professor visiting uh, that participated uh, from Germany. And it was sort of like, you know, we were all like in fear of whether he could make it or not. And he made it. And then, you know, what was the risk factors and all these kind of things. 
and we were sort of like in this bubble in a retreat, obviously for a week, right? Uh, working and then on a drive back, like sort of like on the radio, everything was, well, there's going to be a shutdown and university is going to be locked down and everything. I was like, okay, I guess this is getting real now. So that was a very strange kind of time. And I'm sure that everyone has sort of like their own story about that. Practically for me, this has resulted in an almost sort of like a paralysis initially, like kids were home all of a sudden. Uh, I got nothing done. I didn't know really how to reorganize my life. You know, like you're, you don't have an office anymore, obviously, because you're at home now, you're trying to set up. And research-wise, I got pretty much nothing done right away. Now, I mentioned uh, the, the Cosmo Summer School. We had planned in 2020 to organize the Cosmo Summer School and uh, very quickly became clear that, you know, this would be impossible to do. And so we canceled. And so essentially the way, like, you know, like most people, I guess, uh, initially was sort of like a bit of sort of a relief, right? You got rid of something that <laughs> would have been like a huge headache potentially to organize, especially during the starting start of a pandemic. And then, of course, with all the extra sort of like um, worries about reorganizing research, family life and all these kind of things. Yeah, it was just I was, was happy that it was sort of like... <laughs> So something I didn't have to to, to deal with. Um, but practically speaking, for the, from the research side, also nothing really happened much, or I, I couldn't really focus on anything initially. I was constantly like just checking the news and be worried. And I mean, I'm, I'm sure that this reflects like most people's uh, behaviors or attitudes or experiences uh, during those times. Thank you. And I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about, I know that you mentioned that Cosmo, you realized really quickly on that, it was not going to be able to happen. And then you sort of pivoted towards Neuromatch Academy. Do you mind telling uh, me a little bit more and to the audience a little bit more about Neuromatch Academy and what drove you to that? Yeah. So, I mean, as I said, so pandemic hit and then, you know, we were sort of like in the planning phase of, of Cosmo and, and all of a sudden we were thinking like, well, is this, you know, will this be possible? And like, at that point, most people said, oh, look, look, by May, by June, everything will be over and we'll be back to normal, right? But then, but then we sort of saw like, you know, conferences canceling that were happening over the summer, right? Conferences canceling, other summer schools canceling. We decided to cancel. And it became clear very quickly that, you know, this is going to have a major impact in the field. And the main concern that we had and that we realized fairly quickly is, oh, my God, there's like a whole generation of computational neuroscientists that traditionally have relied on being able to attend these summer schools in person that are essentially going to be left stranded and will not get an opportunity to be trained in, in, any, in any way because no one at that point had any backup plan on doing anything online or, or differently or postpone or, or whatever. It was just like, we're going to cancel this year and then we're going to, we're going to do next year. And so at some point early on, it was actually my, my colleague and friend, Conrad Kerding, who, who sent us uh, Cosmo organized an email and said something like, we should do something. We should just put a bunch of stuff online so that people can get trained. We're like, oh yeah, that, that kind of makes sense. We should put a bunch of stuff online. And then very quickly sort of like thinking about it became clear that we can't just dump a bunch of stuff online <laughs> and expect people to somehow get it, right? And, and really it is, if, if you think about how sort of like the in-person summer schools work, there's like, you know, um, guest lectures or, or us coming in. We have some rough materials, right? But we're there physically, 
to guide you through the tutorials, right? You'll have lots of questions because our tutorials half the time don't work because we plug them together the night before, you know, stuff like that. Physically, we need to be there, right? Now, if you do this online, all of a sudden sort of the question sort of is, well, you know, how is this going to work? And maybe teaching for 40 people online, I can still kind of answer questions. Although even that I think is very tricky. And, and most of us teaching online will have uh, realized that the interaction with the classroom is very different than in-person interactions, right? Now, then the other thing we did very, very quickly was sort of like, we were wondering whether there was any interest at all in an online summer school, right? Because like, well, it's a pandemic. Who, who has time or, or energy for that? We weren't quite sure. So we asked on Twitter and, and we were overwhelmed by the response, essentially. And we expected that maybe a couple hundred people would be interested. And we got like thousands of people saying, yep, I would do that. And that kind of made us realize that if we wanted to do this, we would have to step it up. So that's the point where we essentially said, okay, first of all, we, we want to do this because there's a real need there and, and interest. Second of all, if we want to pull this off, we need to get together sort of like the best educators in the field. And the ones that we targeted mostly were the people that essentially organized all the other summer schools around the world that also got canceled, right? Because they all had experience. And so we started building a team essentially to, to make it happen. And so this is how Neuromatch Academy started. That was very well put on how you started that. And I just want to say thank you because it also afforded a lot of students like me the ability to learn from multiple people in the field and have mentorship from you and like our projects and from many other people. And I, I found it very remarkable, the idea from the beginning that me personally, I live here in the United States, but I was in a group with people from all around Latin America. And I would have never had that interaction with so many people without an opportunity like that. So I just want to say thank you for putting that work in for creating that opportunity for a lot of people. And I wanted to ask you, from the time that you started Neuromatch to where it is now, what have been some of like the biggest growing pains or like the biggest pivots that you've had to do along the way with that? Well, there's many, and we can talk for hours about this, I guess. So maybe I should start with uh, at the beginning. So one of the, so I told you that, uh, you know, initially we thought let's just put a, you know, bunch of materials online and let the students work through them and there's your summer school kind of thing. Now, once we knew that there might potentially be thousands interested, we kind of started worrying because we would not be able to essentially provide the kind of like direct feedback and answer questions about, oh, you know, this code that you gave us doesn't work or, you know, whatever you had in your presentation isn't clear. And so, you know, you can do that for maybe, you know, a few dozen people, but, but not much many more. So that made us realize that we have to, if we want to pull this off, we have to create materials that are uh, much more polished, and also where the need for feedback is reduced as much as possible, right? And so in a way, we had to find a way to design the instruction materials sort of in a much more step-by-step -step fashion, right? Yeah. So when we started off, we were like, okay, so, you know, we'll essentially divide up the day with like an introductory lecture, then we'll have... Um, I think initially we had six tutorials or something like that. And then like a like closing lecture. And we started designing that and we actually built a full test day on, on Bayesian models, essentially, um, where we tried that out. 
And then we did that essentially. So, so one thing I, sh- I should say is that between the time we decided we have to build a summer school that, that became Neuromatch Academy and the time we actually ran the summer school, we had three months, right? Yeah. So within the first month, we essentially, we assembled a team and we, we built this one day of tutorials in Python, et cetera, et cetera, and all the lectures and stuff that go, go with it. And it was, as I said, it has this general structure. And then each of the six tutorials, I think it was six, I can't actually remember right now. Each of the six tutorials actually had one big intro intro lecture, like about a 15-minute or so lecture, that tried to cover the full tutorial section. And I was, you know. So we had a test run. We had students actually do a test run on that. And the feedback was just disastrous. It was essentially, this will not work. First of all, way too much material. Second of all, the individual tutorials were just too long. People, students got lost in various places. It wasn't quite clear what to do. There was no one ready to ask. Well, we had TAs, so, so to speak, right? But, but the TAs were also new to this, so it was very hard to like manage. And so the, the main lessons we got very early on was we need to structure this very differently. We need to really break down the materials in little, into little bite sizes, where every single little bite size would only require the students to write essentially like one line of code. That's it. We cannot possibly do more because otherwise people could get lost, right? And there's no way to sort of like recover that, like catch people because there's no no direct personal interaction with the instructors. So that was sort of like the first big like failure mode. And it was, and it was really great that we, that we got to experience that at the very beginning. So, so at that point, we already had like a full program outlined, essentially, right? Where we said like, okay, each day we'll have these six tutorials, all of the 15 days. And these tutorials will essentially cover on each day, this and this and that. So we had this all, the whole curriculum planned out. After the feedback, the message was, we need to cut at least a third of the content, <laughs> first of all. So total curriculum revamp, essentially, to start with. Second, we need to change fundamentally the way we approach the teaching. We need to fundamentally change the, the way we deliver the materials, right? In chopping essentially the content down as these little bite-sized micro-tutorial steps. And that is, is in the end what we actually did. And then we essentially like built the whole school, ran a full test of the whole school on test students, got extensive feedback on every single day, took that feedback, then went and you know, told all the lecturers and tutorial builders, etc. here's the feedback, go make everything better. <laughs> and then once we had the improved materials, we then went through and did all like the polishing in terms of standardizing the code and making sure everything looks kind of the same, feels the same, difficulty levels, uh, polish the videos, make sure the audio is clear, do the captioning and all this like huge background work. Our component of actually building the materials and making them as hopefully as approachable as possible. Wow. So that, that, that just going through all these different, you can imagine like at every step was sort of like, okay, we're almost there. We almost got the materials and we get the feedback and it's sort of like crushing. It's like, oh my God, like <laughs> all these things to change. <laughs> so yeah, there was definitely lots of hurdles along the way. There was lots of, you know, general hurdles. There was lots of 
we were we were often close to burnout so you can imagine when you know we were all tired the closer we got to the deadline of the actual course the more heated the discussions <laughs> became <laughs> in a in a in an ultimately very positive way but uh, i can definitely remember sometimes where it was hard and i wanted to ask you this was not neuromatch is not just something in north america or europe it's a global endeavor how how hard was it for you especially like trying to figure out and coordinate with people for example that are in neuromatch that are working in for example india or in africa um how was that for scheduling wise for you guys how were you all able to manage all that not just you but uh, the other coordinators yeah so maybe first of all i should say that as soon as we as we tried thinking about the implications of creating an online summer school we immediately realized that this should not become sort of like a backup mode of what we used to be doing in person right yeah but as real potential of overcoming a whole bunch of limitations that the real person summer schools have and had in the past and and one of them is of course is is just accessibility right yeah like real traditional summer schools cost the participant typically about 5 grand by the time you've paid the registration fees the travel the accommodation the food etc cetera, etc cetera. so either you are in a very rich lab that will send you to such a summer school or you are independently wealthy and can afford such a summer school and if you don't fall into these two very privileged categories there's no way you will ever get into a summer school like this or be able to participate in a summer school like this so really we thought hey look doing this online the only thing you really need and and again this, this is also an accessibility issue but unfortunately it's one that's much harder to resolve for us but the only thing you need is essentially internet access and a computer we were hoping that anyone that has access to a university would have that access i'm not sure to what degree that is quite true we've had cases where um you know the 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 participants would tell us look like i'm tr- i will try to participate but just so you know i have about 3 hours of power every day where i live and you know power is out there's no more internet etc cetera, etc cetera. so i mean this is def- definitely challenges that you know li- living in in north america i'm unfamiliar with and that you know create a real a real barrier that is very hard for us to overcome but that being said creating an online summer school has really allowed us to be much more inclusive and not just in terms of sort of like socio economic status but also in terms of geography right um a lot of people might have been able to participate in summer schools if they had been allowed to travel right so for example we, we obtained a, a license to be able to teach to students and pay tas living in iran what which is a sanctioned um country right um and we're currently working on getting getting uh, licenses for other places in the world where similar sanctions uh, are in place so so this was this was really sort of like a almost like a revelation to us and it, and it sounds kind of bad because we you know we were of, of course all sort of like implicitly aware of the privilege 
that we have or had with respect to education. But ultimately, when, when we built Neuromatch Academy, we realized that this would be a real strength that might outlast any sort of restrictions in terms of pandemic, et cetera. And so with that in mind, we really tried very hard to, to, to push Neuromatch Academy to become as international as possible and to cover as much territory globally as, as we potentially can. And we had like a whole outreach team that, that helped us uh, doing so quite successfully. Now, of course, and, and I'm sorry, this is a bit of a long looped answer here. Um, okay. that, that does come with challenges, right? So the first challenge is actually um, for us to just figure out when things happen where. <laughs> or should be happening where time zones I, I don't know how much you have experienced time zones just through conferences or something like that time zones are just hard i don't know what it is about it maybe it's just because we're not used to it but time zones are just hard and then you can imagine that you know we ask all the participants hey please tell us your preferred time zone well time zones are just as hard if not harder for participants that who have potentially not been exposed to them as much as as we have trying to organize that and thinking about it constantly right yeah and of course like lots of people got it wrong and and it created all kinds of issues in terms of you know us putting people in a group that is just in a totally wrong time zone for what you know and then the, the group members saying like look i would really like to take neuromatch academy but like my group is supposed to work at 2 a.m. and like, I do need some sleep. And we're being like, oh, yeah, 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 of course. <laughs> and, and something went wrong somewhere. And anyway, so, so yes, time zones are a real challenge. But if you can overcome those, which I think we kind of did, then it, then it really opens up doors for, for, for lots of people. And the solution we had essentially is that we ran three Neuromatch Academies in parallel, yeah. right? So we had essentially three major time zones, one that was sort of like Asia, Australia, one that was Europe, Africa, and one that was the Americas, and then had groups essentially in those major time zones have synchronous activities. So that, that's how we, how we solved the problem. And then we had, of course, coordinators for the different time zones and things like that that helped essentially ensure that someone was always on call, <laughs> right? It was not just like, okay, all the organizers are North American, they're all going to sleep now and Asia is falling apart or something like that, right? That, that's the kind of stuff that you need to deal with. Yeah. And then in terms of communication internally, while well, we, were, we, were, we were essentially using Slack, we have like a big Slack channel um, from the organizer side to um, talk and coordinate. And then we tried to schedule meetings in a way that, you know, most people can attend <laughs> those meetings without, but, but it is hard if you have membership from just around the globe, there's just no time that suits everyone. So you'll have to make choices there. Of course. Well, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to do this. Thank you for your work with Neuromatch and what you have been able to create for people all around the world in sort of democratizing access to computational neuroscience and now deep learning education as well. So I just wanted to say thank you. And I really appreciate you taking the time for the interview. No problem. So, you know, it's like a very, in, in a way I could say it was a very selfish thing to do because uh, as I said early on, when you asked me how, you know, how is my life impacted, my professional life impacted by the pandemic? Like 
my research essentially shut down because I just couldn't focus. And Neuromatch Academy happened to be my saving grace. It was sort of like the giant light at the end of the tunnel and still is in a, in, a, in a certain way. It was like the one big silver lining, the one positive things where, you know, I interacted with all the now friends of Neuromatch and, and in a way it, it kept me sane, motivated and useful because I, I really felt useless <laughs> to a certain degree. Right. And, and so, so, so I'm, I'm glad, it, I'm glad it was useful, but, but in, in a certain way, like, I'm also glad it was it, it helped me personally because I think I would have fallen apart otherwise, potentially. That's yeah, I totally can see where you're coming from. And I mean you can tell by the amount of effort that you've put into the organization. And I just wanted to say thank you. You're most welcome. Thank you all for tuning into the Neurotech Talk with Juan Martin. I hope that this episode has allowed you to better understand neurotechnology computational neuroscience, and the great work organizations such as Neuromatch Academy and NeuroTechX are doing to unite the community. I also want to thank all of my interviewers for their insights and for the work they're doing to unite the field. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to the COVID Chronicles. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe, share it with a friend, and rate it on your favorite podcasting app. You can visit us at exploringhealth.org and follow the Emory University Center for the Study of Human Health at Emory CSHH on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next time, stay safe and be well.